0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Romans, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. I have three goals for this morning. Goal number one is that I want to give us a glimpse of what the Reformation was and is about this is Reformation Sunday. Many of you perhaps thought that I would come dressed as a character. Uh, that'll be Wednesday night. I've written four dramas for Wednesday night, of which I'll do one, and others will do the other three, or the other four, the other three. Four. Three plus one, four. Got it. Uh, and I'll do a first person monologue around Christmas, but not today. So my first goal today is to just give us a glimpse of why the Reformation. My second goal is to give clarity to when we share the gospel, what exactly are we sharing? Because sometimes I think perhaps we're tempted to cut some corners. We don't want to do that. And the third goal is if perhaps you don't know Christ, today would be the day that you would believe in Jesus. Let's uh, turn to the Lord and ask Him to guide our time. Father God, we just sang ancient words, ever true, ancient words that change me and you. Father, do that today. Allow Your Word, Your inspired and errant Word to impact us, to change us, to make a difference in our lives. Father, I especially want to lift up Randy and Peggy Wenkoff and their family today as their 28-year-old son Riley passed away. Father, I can't imagine that kind of grief. And I pray that your ancient words would bring comfort, that your spirit would bring comfort to them, this dear family. And Father, as we look at probably the lynch Pin passage of the Reformation. I pray that you would guide our hearts into a closer understanding of your truths, of your word, of the Eulangelion, the good news. Father God, our time we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. In the 16th century, Europe was largely divided in spiritual realms. In large part, it was divided over a man named Dr. Martin Luther, who on October 31st, 1517, nailed 95 theses, 95 protests to the Wittenberg church door in Wittenberg, Germany understand that it was never Martin Luther's intent to split the universal or Catholic, that's what Catholic means, church. He was not looking for the protest, that's what Protestant means. If he had done so, he would have written those 95 theses in German. He did not. He wrote them in Latin, the language of the scholars. It was his intent for scholars of the church of which he was one, to look at the state of the church and to make corrections. But as you're probably aware, the Pope, Leo X, reacted rather negatively, censoring 41 of his 95 protests. Now throughout church history, there have been godly popes. There have also been ungodly popes. Pope Leo X was of the ungodly variety. There's no doubt about that, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, Pope Leo X was an ungodly man. And he responded to Martin Luther's 95 thesis by issuing a papal bull. Bull from the Latin bullus, which means seal. When a pope speaks from the throne of Peter, ex cathedra, and he speaks better than he knows, ex opere operata, and he issues a papal bull, the Catholic Church believes those words are equal to and often superior to Holy Scripture. He issued one called Exurge Domine Arise, O Lord! As in, Arise, O Lord, and snuff out the life of Martin Luther. He called Luther a boar in the vineyard of the Lord. And he gave Luther 60 days to recant. And you remember that Luther did not and would not recant. He said, Unless I am convinced by the words of Holy Scripture, I will not recant. And thus began the protest, the Protestant Reformation. And you remember that Martin Luther's words were translated into the common languages and spread throughout Europe. And so what he intended for a scholarly debate became a discussion among all individuals in the universal church. Now understand, that was not Luther's intent. His intent was simply to correct some wrongs in the church. Let's take a 20,000 foot little flyby of the life of Luther. Luther was born to Margaret and Hans Luther. He was born 120 miles southwest of Berlin. He grew up in a place called Mansfield. His father, Hans, was a copper miner and actually owned several copper mines. But he determined that Martin would not work in one of the mines. He recognized a world-class mind in his son. And so at the age of 13, Martin Luther enrolled at the University of Erfurt And in record time, literally, he earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree. It was his father's intent that he would become a lawyer. His mind was so keen that the professors at the University of Erfurt called this young Luther the philosopher. And you remember it was about 1505, when Luther was walking back to the University of Erfurt, that a huge storm came up. And in the midst of the storm, a bolt of lightning hit not far from where Luther stood, knocking him to the ground. And he cried out, Save me, Saint Anne, save my life. I will become an Augustinian monk. Anne was the grandmother of Christ, the mother of Mary. He cried out to her. He was in fact saved from the storm, I think not by Anne, but by the Lord. But he honored the commitment. He sold all of his possessions, and he became an Augustinian monk. And if you know anything about Luther, you know that he was a calm sort of guy, never bombastic, never loud. Of course, that's not at all Luther. He was to take on the church. Thank goodness Luther didn't have a Twitter account. It would have exploded all over the place. And in the midst of being an Augustinian monk, Luther grew to hate God. Those are not my words. Those are Luther's words. He understood from Romans 1.17 that we needed the righteousness of God. Luther said if ever a monk could have earned the righteousness of God, it would be himself. He would sleep in the middle of a German winter without blanket on the cold stone pavement in order to atone for his own sins. He would take a whip, flagellation, and beat his body to atone for his sins. He would spend hours each day in the confessional booth, confessing the very sins he had confessed hours ago, or a day ago, or a week ago, and he did it over and over and over again. He prayed night and day. He said, if anyone could ever earn personal righteousness as a monk, I would be that person. But he knew that he was not righteous before God. And he thought of God as unfair, unkind, unloving. He understood the wrath of God. He did not understand the love of God. He didn't know anything about the mercy of God, the grace of God. And likewise, because of that, he learned to hate God. How unfair of God to call him to a life of righteousness when he was not capable of it. And then that day came in the church of St. John Lateran. We'll talk about it at the end of the message. But in that church at St. John Lateran, he came to understand Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith in a very different way. Today you and I are going to look at the linchpin of the Protestant Reformation. We're going to look at perhaps the most important passage in the Bible. It is not unfair to say that Romans 1, 16 and 17 summarizes not only the book of Romans, it summarizes the Old and the New Testament combined. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, for in the righteousness of God, it is revealed from faith, for faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. These two verses lit the Reformation and I think summarize all of Scripture. As you and I begin... Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to believe, or the power to transform for those who believe, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. But I read that, and I wonder how many of us might make the same statement. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, 18 and following, he tells us that the Gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving world. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of our good works are but filthy rags in the presence of God. That seems like foolishness to a world that says work well, work hard, have your good works outweigh your bad works and then you can come into the pearly gates into the presence of God. No wonder Paul says this is foolishness to the world, yet Paul says I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Understand that the gospel is the euangelion, it's the good news but it always starts with bad news. I think this is one of those shortcuts we do. We don't explain the bad news. We want to get to the good news. We want to get to the love of God, but we don't explain why we need the love of God, why we need the transforming work of God, why we need Christ on the cross, why we need Christ to rise from the dead. It's because of the bad news that leads to the good news. And we've got to start with the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners to the point that we are incapable of saving ourselves. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, 10 to 18. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, not a one. No one understands The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Whoa. Better go decaf, Paul. He doesn't get any Pepsi Max, no five-hour energy, no jolt. The guy's just a little bit too much for most of us. And yet the truth is, he's brutally honest. He's brutally honest about how he stands before God Without Christ, apart from Christ, he's brutally honest how you and I stand before God apart from, aside from Christ. There is no one righteous. We use the phrase total depravity, which doesn't mean that we are as evil as we could be. It means that every part of our body is tainted with sin. We originally got sin from Adam, and if we hadn't, we would have taken care of it ourselves. We are sinners by birth, sinners by action. Every part of our being is tainted with sin. No wonder Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to pay the penalty of my sin. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 5, That he, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to become sin for us. He took our sin upon himself on the cross that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And when you and I share the Eulangelion, the good news of salvation... We need to start with the bad news of the state of our being before God. We are sinners by birth, sinners by action, totally deprived. And we are utterly in need of redemption. We are in need of reconciliation. We are in need of rescue. And we cannot do it on our own. And that's the message that God calls us to give 2 Corinthians five twenty says, we are therefore God's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did Paul follow this advice? Was Paul an ambassador for Jesus? Did Paul shy away? Was he ashamed of the gospel or were he? His words, true. Consider this. Paul was thrown in prison in Philippi for sharing the gospel of Christ. He was railroaded out of Thessalonica after only a short period, and he had to leave Thessalonica for fear of death. In Damascus and Berea, the church snuck him out of the cities or he would have been put to death. In Athens, they mocked him In Jerusalem, they called him a blasphemer and threatened his life. In Corinth, they laughed at him. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. When Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it doesn't mean that he lacked fear. He probably feared greatly for his life, and right he should. And yet he was on mission. He understood connect grow, go. He understood that life is about telling others of the greatness and the glory of God. We don't dichotomize our work. At work, we share the gospel. We don't dichotomize our time of recreation. At recreation, we share the gospel. We don't dichotomize our our time of the arts and sports during them. And in the midst of them, we share the gospel. We're on mission. We're on point. We are the ambassadors of God as though God were making his appeal through us. I implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. Paul was on point with the gospel. I trust that many of you are on mission with the gospel. The euangelium, the good news, that tells people how, as sinners, we can be saved, not through ourselves, but through what Christ has done for us. I think of a woman named Anne Askew. Anne Askew is a heroine of the Reformation. If you don't know her name, you ought, I ought, we ought to remember Anne Askew. She lived in Lincolnshire, England, She constantly shared the gospel with others. She lived in a day and age where her father would arrange her marriage, and her father gave her away to a man named Thomas, an ungodly, cruel man. And every time Anne would share the gospel, Thomas would beat her, and he beat her repeatedly when she would share the gospel with him, when she would share the gospel with others. But she understood higher law as God's law, and she obeyed God. Eventually, Thomas threw her out on the street, which in her day and age meant probably death, and she continued to share the gospel. It was 1546. If you know 1546, the Council of Trent, the beginning of the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent was a condemnation, of Protestantism, never been revoked. In England, it was against the law to be a Protestant at that time. It was against the law to share the gospel, and she did. She's the only woman known to be taken to the Tower of London to be tortured. And she was put on the rock, and they stretched her, and they dislocated her shoulders, They destroyed her elbows and her wrists. And her hips were pulled out, and her knees and her ankles. They dislocated all of them and put her back out on the street and askew. And crawling around, she continued to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The inquisitors demanded that she release the name of other Protestants. She would not. The Inquisitors demanded that she stop sharing the gospel. She did not. And in June of 1546, she was burned at the stake. And great will be Anne Askew's reward in heaven. Like Paul, Anne Askew was not ashamed of the gospel. Like many of you, I trust, she was not ashamed of the gospel. What is this gospel that Paul and Anne and many of you are not ashamed of? What is this gospel that Luther so desperately wanted to understand? He looked again at Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness, the, the justification, the dikaiosune. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. For as it is written, the just shall live. By faith. Luther knew the verse. Luther had memorized the verse. The problem was that Luther understood the righteousness of God to be the standard that God demanded of him without any help. And that resulted in Luther hating God. He said it doesn't make any sense that God would require a sinner like me to have his standard of righteousness on my own. And so he hated God. Now you might push back a bit, and you might say, well, if he is a world-class intellect, probably a man without intellectual peer in his day, how is it that Luther did not understand the gospel being given through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. How is it that he misunderstood how to get the righteousness of God? Well, it's because he misunderstood the word righteousness or justification, dikaiosune. This is a make-or-break word. For many years, I took part in licensing and ordination councils In the Evangelical Free Church. These are where people would write a 25 to 40-page paper, depending on if it's a license or an ordination. Then a number of people, six to eight, would read it. Then they'd have three hours of being asked as many questions as you want. And probably never did we have a candidate that got all of it right. just doesn't work that way. But this is make or break if they get the word justification wrong, they fail. There is no giving in on this one. And yet Luther got it wrong. And you say, well, how did a world-class intellect get it wrong when a lightweight like, like me thinks he gets it right? The answer is this the very first translation of the Bible, translating out of Greek and Hebrew into the common language, was the Latin Vulgate. It was worked on from 384 to 404 by a brilliant scholar named Jerome. Jerome's Vulgate is a very good translation. But like every translation, you have... Errors creeping into it because humans are taking original languages and transforming it into another language. Generally, that's why we have a team of scholars working on a translation because a team can correct one another. But Jerome did the first translation by himself. And when he came to the word daikiasune, justification, he thought justification, that sounds like justificare in Latin. And so that's what he wrote down. But justificare, justice, right. Ficare, the verb to make, means to make righteous. But justification, dicaiosune, means to declare righteous. To make righteous. To declare righteous. Now you may say, well, that's just a little bit of semantics. It's no big deal. It's the deal between salvation and not. You get this word wrong, you get salvation wrong. To make righteous lends itself to trying harder to earn God's favor. To make righteous is why Luther sleeps on the stone-cold pavement in the middle of winter in Germany to earn his salvation. To make righteous is why he's beating himself somehow to please God. To make righteous is why he's going to the confessional booth for three, four, five, six hours every day, day after day, to somehow earn God's favor. To make righteous. It's to somehow believe that when the scales end up, you want to have the good works outweigh the bad works and somehow impress a holy God by what you and I have done. To make righteous is an attempt to earn salvation. Well, an interesting thing happened during the Reformation. The church went back to the Greek and the Hebrew text not just Protestants, but Catholics as well. So we have the greatest Catholic scholar, Erasmus, giving us a Greek translation and getting "dikaiasune" right. He realizes the word "dikaiasune" doesn't mean to make righteous, but to declare righteous. This is God covering sinners with the shed blood of Christ. This is imputation, where our sin is placed on Christ, and his righteousness is placed on us. His righteousness is imputed to us, and we are declared righteous because of what Jesus did. He paid the penalty of our sin. So Martin Luther is born again. The year is 1510. Maybe 11, we're not really sure. We know the location. The location, it's St. John Lateran's Church. And he goes up the Scalia Sancta, the Holy Stairs. They'll put a picture of it. That's me, uh, somewhere there in the middle, a week ago. I gotta tell you, that is the most painful experience of my life. I'm going up those stairs on my knees with a bunch of women who are not whimpering. I won't tell you about myself, but that is painful. There's 28 of those stairs. Each stair is worth 15 years of purgatory being removed. 420 years of purgatory if you go up those stairs on your knees You'll see wood underneath is stone. The stone comes from the lithostratus, the stone pavement in Jerusalem, 10 feet under the city where Jesus was beaten by Pilate. And Martin Luther went to Rome. And he started up those stairs. And he said, "The the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he cited Romans 1.17 until he suddenly realized diakosune, justification, is not what we do. It's what Christ does in us. Let me read from Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It couldn't be any clearer than this verse. Romans 4, the fifth verse. And to the one who does not work Who are we talking about? The one who's not beating themselves. The one who's not lying on stone cold pavement. To the one who does not work, but trusts him, Jesus, who justifies, there's our word, who justifies who? The ungodly. Who's being justified? Not the righteous one, the ungodly. His faith. His faith in the justification of Christ is counted as righteousness. The Reformation is the five solas. I've talked about three of them. Sola means only. Sola fide, only faith. Sola gratia, only grace. Solas Christus, only Christ. There's two others. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. But the Reformation hinges on these first three. Faith alone, not works. In grace alone, not what we earn, but what God has done for us. And solus Christus, in Christ alone. And so Martin Luther prayed to receive Christ. Martin Luther is hardly an innocent guy. He's a pretty major sinner in lots of ways. His views of the Jews and what he did and his declaration of the Jews, not good, evil, evil. If Martin Luther had to earn his way to heaven, he could not do it but he placed his faith in Christ. When you and I share the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, we have to share the bad news that we are incapable of saving ourselves and that justification means that we are declared righteous. The ungodly by faith in Christ alone are saved. That's the good news. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, today's the day to do it. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, an act of worship is to be on point, to be on mission, and to share the gospel, the good news, with others. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the good news, the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. I thank you for Paul, who is not ashamed. I thank you for Anna Skew, who is not ashamed. I thank you for many here today who are not ashamed. Help us to be on point and on mission in sharing the good news. And if there's somebody here today that does not know Jesus, I pray that by faith they would believe in your Son. God, who also became man, lived a perfect life and then died as a payment of our sin and exchanges his righteousness, imputes his righteousness upon us as we give him our sin through faith and he pays the penalty on the cross. Father, thank you for that kind of love. We love you. We love your son. We love your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.